I'm reminded this morning just how in the Old Testament God speaks. Sometimes He speaks to a storm, and sometimes He speaks to a whisper. It feels like this morning that God is speaking to us through a whisper. Um, I love how not every Sunday is the same. I love how different Sundays we experience different ways that God speaks to us. And Lord Jesus, just as we quietened our hearts, as this morning, just this, this morning again, this is fresh, gentle reminder of who you are to our hearts. We just thank you for, for songs that do it. Thank you for the, the team that led us so beautifully. Thank you that you are with us. And yeah, we just, as we open our hearts now to your word, we, we ask that you would continue this gentle, yet powerful and strong work in us that you've begun in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Thank you, guys. Uh, I love the fact that um, that we get to experience God in different ways. Uh, Sunday ago, it was loud and raucous worship, and almost like a yeah, recharging. And this morning, there's a almost like a contemplative kind of just time with God. And it's amazing how God knows what we need, isn't it? It's incredible how. We can't just live on a diet of, of up here, and every now and then we have to quieten our hearts before Him. Um, I hope you've enjoyed our journey through Jonah. Um, it has been challenging, but it's been also encouraging to all of us. For some of you, it's the first time that you've been in church where we are slowly reading through one book of the Bible and kind of tucking our way through it. And I'm, I'm trusting that it's been a grace to you and that it's been encouraging to you as well. Um, this morning, we are we're getting to the whale, everybody, like eventually. <laughs> Week six, and now we talk about the whale. Some of you have been waiting for this moment. Um, I've entitled this morning, it's actually a book by Philip Yancey called What is So Amazing About Grace? I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's probably one of the most well-known um, Christian literatures out there. What is so amazing about grace? Have you ever stopped to think to yourself, hey, what is so amazing about God's grace? Have you ever tried to put grace into words? I know that sometimes grace and some of the constructs and some of the, the ideas of God's love, etc., towards us, um, is abstract, and, and this morning I'm hoping that we can take an abstract, no, an abstract notion and kind of become very real to it. Like, what does God's grace mean to you? Do you want to take a second and just think for yourself? What do you think of when you think of God's grace? Have you ever experienced God's grace? Have you experienced God's grace personally in your life? I'm very aware that some of us might sit here and going, I'm not sure that I've quite experienced God's grace. I know about it. I've heard about it. We sing about it often at church, but... Oh, no, I'm not sure if I've experienced the transformative work of God in my life, the grace of God in my life. And I'm hoping that this morning, as we just read through again with Jonah, we continue our journey, we're actually going to see God's incredible grace on Jonah. And I'm praying that for you, if you hear this morning, you're saying, I'm in desperate need of God's grace in my life. Whatever area that is, whether it's emotionally, whether it's relationally, whether it's financially, whether it is in your marriage or your friendship or your health, that this morning you would trust God for His grace to be shown to you. So won't you, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. If you don't have a Bible yet, it will be on the board behind me. We're going to read from Jonah 1 verse 17 and then the, the whole of chapter 2. Don't worry, it's only 10 verses. Mm-hmm. Jonah 1 verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah or a whale. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Can I just pause there? Who remembers... When you were at school, when I was at school, okay, now that's decades ago, who remember, remembers Creoles, the, the chips? That blue packet of, did you love them? You loved them. Uh, they, were, they were disgusting, to say the least. 
Do you know how bad Creoles were? It was so bad. Oh, okay. Whoa, whoa. Okay. So, MJ, you would have been so happy in the belly of a whale. Because it smelled a bit like Creoles. It was that disgusting smell. We were like... We were so committed to our rugby team that we used to, before big rugby games, make our front row eat packets of creoles so they would breathe the stinking, fishy, rotten smell over their opponents and get whatever edge we could take to beat the opponent. But literally, Jonah was in the belly of this fish whale for three days. It smelled like the worst. Have you ever been fishing? And you forget your bait in the bait box for three days in the summer, over summer. And then you go, hey, I need to go open that bait box. That's the kind of smell that you, I just want you to have some, some. I hope you can feel it, smell it. I don't know, some smells you can actually taste. Um, anyway, that's with just, I, I, you need to know where Jonah was. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol or hell, I cried. It's like hell. Hey, have we, we've been there. Hey, like we, we get to some situations in our life and go, this is like a living hell that we're going through right now. Jonah knows a bit about, and you heard my voice. For you cast me, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Get this. He's trying to explain to us where he's at. At the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me for, forever. He's literally seeing where he's at. And he's seeing like a prison over him. Like the bars of a prison shut over him. So I cannot get out of where I am right now. That's the picture he's using here. Yet you brought me up. My life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Can we pray? And then we're going to look at the amazing grace. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you that we learned so much about you through Jonah's life. We, <coughs> we also learned so much about ourselves when we look at where Jonah is. We are so acutely aware that amongst us this morning there are us, there are our friends, there are colleagues at work that might be finding themselves at the belly of the fish, barred over, no way out, crying to you. And I ask this morning, Lord Jesus, that through the preaching of your word, that you would encourage us, that you would show amazing grace to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to ask a few questions about this passage and um, you can't look at Jonah and, go and ask some questions about why did it have to get to this point? Why did God, it, the language is you sent a storm. Remember in the first few weeks, God hold a storm at the boat. And now he, he says, you cast me into the sea. You, you did this. He's kind of like, Jonah is not unaware that God has placed him in this situation. The first question for us to think through this morning is, where is it that we look to find God's grace? Where do we look? Where do we find God's grace? 
For Jonah, it's at the belly of the ocean, but also in the belly of a fish. He's at his worst, at the, at the, the short answers at the bottom of the ocean, rock, rock bottom. It's amazing as a pastor how often when people find themselves at the worst place in their lives is the turning point for their lives towards God and towards God and towards in, enjoying God's grace. Often rock bottom at your worst place. The Lord appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord appointed a tree to grow later on. There's this theme in Jonah's life. Our God in his sovereignty is appointing and does and works in him. Peter Craigie says this about us. He says, when we reject and disobey God, as Jonah did, it takes radical treatment if it is to be remedied. Jonah's radical disobedience needed a radical remedy. His, his radical um, sin needed a radical remedy. And we're going to get to the cross in Christ later for our own lives. He points out that the text here is depicting Jonah as a, as a descending down into Joppa, down into the sea. You see, if you read Jonah, the book you read, he went down to Joppa, he went down into the ship, he went down to the depths of the ship, and now he's finally down in the belly of the ocean. There's this, there's this constant descent in his life. There's this running away, but, but his life is spiraling downwards, not upwards. He's not climbing the ladder to success. He's going in the, the opposite direction, poor Jonah. And it's very, very clear. In jo- in, um, David writes in the Psalms, he says, deep calls out to deep, calls to deep. It's like jo- David has experienced suffering in his life and, and deep depression emotionally. And he's saying, I thought I was in, in deep trouble. Then I discovered, no, trouble can get deeper, it can get deeper. It can get... And every time I, I kind of look at my life, I feel like I'm in, in more trouble than the day before. Isn't that true that what happens in our lives sometimes is when we start spiraling downwards in like, like Jonah's situation, we do find ourselves from one depth of trouble to another depth, and we think this must be rock bottom. And you go, no, no, there is worse. I remember us having to 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 have an intervention with a with a with a friend um, addicted to alcohol and abusing alcohol, and he said, "I'm sure this is rock bottom." I said, "No, no, no, there's worse coming. If you keep going, there's worse than this. There's deeper than this. You can get into deeper trouble than you, you think you are right now. So stop now while you can handle we around to help you." And it's it's seemingly in humankind and in our nature. That until we reach rock bottom, we don't recognize that we actually need help or, or need saving. We, we kind of got this thing together until we realize actually we can't. But it's not until we're way, way down that we, that we finally strip from our own self-sufficiency. Where I can do this. I can fix. I can save myself. I can, fi- I can deliver myself from this. That we actually turn to God and cry to God. Up until this, nowhere in the, in the story, in this uh, encounter with Jonah, does he turn to God. Not when the storm hits, not when he's at the bottom, not when they're tossing. And never does he call and say, God, will you stop the storm? Only now, when he's at the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the belly of the fish, does he start crying out to God. Why, why at the bottom? Why is that where we find God? Or why is that when we seem to turn or we experience God's grace? And I, there's two verses here. In verse 3 and 4, Jonah speaks, and um, the, the writer says this, For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas. And then later it says, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. If you look at the Bible, you look at Abraham in the Bible, you look at Joseph, you look at David, Elijah, Peter, they all become these incredibly powerful names and people that we all, we all know. You don't even have to go to church much to know about Abraham and Elijah and, and Peter and, and David in the Bible or Joseph in the Bible to know who they are. But they became significant through their suffering, through the encountering of brokenness in their lives. And so I want to say to you, if you're encountering brokenness in your life right now, if you, if you feel like, hey, I'm hitting rock bottom here, you're in a, in a, in a great place to receive the grace of God. I know, it's this, I know it's not a great place to be in. I'll just explain to you what it was like for Jonah. 
But he's in a great place to experience God and he turns to God. We can attest that for many of our lives. I'm not sure how you came to Christ. Many folk come to Christ and to faith when they're at the worst in their life, when they've hit, when they've either, when, with, a, with a marriage breaking up or when a child dies or when they lose a spouse or they lose their employment or they, they don't know where else to turn and they turn to God or they say, hey, I can't turn to Korea, I can't turn to my health, I can't turn to my wife, my family. Now I only have one place to turn to and it's, it's only God. And Jonah got here in his life. He got to the bottom of the belly of the rock in the, in the, in the ocean and he wrecked. There is nowhere else now. I'm going to rot with this fish. I'm dying here. And then he starts calling out to God. Then we get the prayer in chapter 2 that we're going to get to just now. I don't know what you think it says about humankind that we need to sometimes get there before we turn to God. Isn't it? Hey, I don't know if you've ever been someone that said, God, you don't have to take me back down there. I'll, I'll worship you while I'm up here. I don't, don't, don't worry about getting me down there. I'm not sure what it is about our human nature that that needs us to sometimes be broken or humble before we turn to Him for His grace and for His answer. But there seems to be something in us as human beings that that's almost the only way that God reaches some of us. Or all of us. Let's not say some of us. All of us. The way up was first of all down. The usual place to learn the, the greatest secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. Jack Sasson says this, about this passage and he says at this point of the story the action is about to come to full halt, to a full halt to leave Jonah alone with God it's almost like the handbrake in the story comes to an end and this is the end of the story this is the end of Jonah's journey it's the end of his life and all he's left with is himself in the belly I'm going to rot and die here and the only one that he could turn to is God no one else it's almost like God orchestrated this for Jonah's for his saving for Jonah's saving he orchestrated this place where Jonah would come to a place where he could not save himself. He didn't have the ability to save himself or even the desire that unless he was busy dying that he would cry out to God, that he would cry out to God, which would be his saving grace in the future. We live in a, in a world where we told like we, that self-esteem can save us. If you just get your self-esteem, have a positive thinking or positive attitude about who you are. And once your identity is strong, and you're going to make it. And we realize that sometimes or very often even the best self-esteems get crumbled. And it doesn't take much for a big blown up self-esteem or ego to be popped. We know that we, we are told by this world that we know the best answers for ourselves. We, we are told that we can be Mr. and Mrs. Fixit. And I'm not talking about the politician known, known as Mr. Fixit. But we are. We have this thing that we and I can fix it. We have this idea as human beings that I can fix my way out of this. I can work my way out of this. I can come up with an answer and a solution. And especially if you're a guy. Guys tend to be even more than the ladies like this. Just give me a project. I'm going to fix it. Or give me a problem. I will solve it. And we see here with, with Jonah that, that is incredibly humbling to you and I. Is the only time that Jonah is prepared to turn to God and enjoy the grace of God is when he's unable to save himself, when he literally is at his lowest. I don't know self-esteem-wise, but having weed and rotting fish around you, busy dying in the bottom of the ocean, in the belly of a whale, when no one knows who you are, what you are, the sailors don't even know your name, you're literally nobody, nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. It took Jonah to get there before he cried out to God. Just let that sink into you, to your heart and to my luck. That's where it got Jonah. We said in week one or two that 
we're going to read Jonah, and then every now and then we're going to find the target or the zoom in on our lives going, hey, that's not just Jonah, that's, that's me, honor. I'm like that, if I'm honest. I'll rather solve everything myself before I go to God and ask Him for help or, or for His grace. It's just a, a tendency that I have. It's one of my struggles. Is I'll rather try and be Mr. Fix-It before stopping and saying, Hey, Lord, would you help? I tend to do that in my own life and I lead a church. <laughs> Maybe I'm too honest. But that's where we are. Or, we, or our egos or what we think of ourselves. We just have one person question your integrity or, or who you are. And your whole world spins down. You're going, what am I even doing? What am I worth? Or what, what, how, how can I even open my mouth and say anything about Jesus or the God, the God that I love so much? When I was preparing this, I was sitting on my couch and I was actually overwhelmed by just, this is me. I try and fix myself before I go to God. I care more what others say and think of me than I think, or I care that God thinks of me. I'm more eager to obey honor's agenda for his life than God's agenda for his life. I find more security in my identity than my identity in him and who he is. So don't forget what Quint reminded us of when when they asked Jonah who he was, he's, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a prophet. <laughs> he found his identity in his Hebrewness, and, and that caused all kinds of issues with him wanting to share the gospel with anybody that's not a Hebrew and nothing like him. And that was so, and we're going to get later into Jonah and see that this is a saving moment for Jonah, but we're going to see there are many saving moments in Jonah's life in this story with his attitude towards those who are not like him. It's going to encourage us, but it's also going to give us a bit of a wake-up call as to God's incredible grace over our own lives. Where do we look for, for grace? Where did Jonah look? There are these two beautiful moments in his prayer in verse 4 and verse 7 where Jonah says this, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. And then in verse 7, three verses later, it says, When my life is fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your temple. I went to your temple. Why is the temple? Why was the temple so significant in his prayer? What was at the temple that Jonah was so desperately needing or reminded of? Now in the temple we find the, the mercy seat in the, in the Holy of Holies. So in those days um, the temple was designed. There was an outer court, an inner court. And then there was a, a place right in the middle where only a priest could go once a year. And he would make atonement for the sins so they would bring the most perfect lamb to a sacrifice. The priest would take the blood into the Holy of Holies and lay down on the mercy seat a golden, like a gold slab that once a year they would pour the blood of the lamb over and that would atone for the sins of a whole nation. So one death would lead to the forgiveness of many. Remember we, we spoke about that and when we speak about the, the, our communion tables, Christ's death that we all benefit from by, by what He's done on the cross. So Jonah's at the belly other fishes at the worst place you could imagine. And he looks and he's cast his eyes and he says, I remember the temple. I remember that in the temple there's a there's a golden slab, the mercy seat. God's mercy seat is in the temple, where one sacrifice means the liberation and the freedom and the grace and life for many. And that's where Jonah goes to in his prayer. He says, Hey God, I'm remembering. And I'm not saying he's reminding God, but he's reminding himself that hey God, you're a God of mercy. That there's a mercy seat in the Holy of Holies where a sacrifice is made. And that sacrifice atones for all our sin. And Jonah's got to the place where he said, God, I'm reminding you. Not that God needs reminding, 
But hey God, there's a mercy seat. You are a merciful God. There is a sacrifice that is made for atonement. And he reminds himself, again, he reminds himself of the costly grace of God. He reminds himself that God's grace towards him costs the death of a lamb and one day will cost the death of his son for you and I. So when we have communion, we, in some ways we are celebrating the mercy seat. We are, we are celebrating one life sacrificed for you and I to be atoned and made right with God. And it's to this that Jonah cries out to God. He says, hey Lord, your temple, I look to your temple. That's where my salvation comes from. Not because of what happens, but the God that does that. There is a God that is merciful. There is a God that is willing to sacrifice. There is a God that is willing to forgive and bring life to. And in the belly of the fish, this is his prayer to God. Hey God, mercy, mercy, grace, Lord, grace. What an incredible picture for you and I. J.I. Packer, um, most probably one of the most profound theologians of our time, speaks this about amazing grace. And this might apply to you and I, but there's three things at the end of this quote that's significant for us in our journey through Jonah. J.R. Packer, Packer is right when he says this, Many people sing amazing grace and give lip service to the idea, but the grace has not profoundly changed them. And I said that this morning, like, do we really understand what the transformative power of God's grace is in, in your life and my life? God's grace becomes wondrous Endlessly consoling, beautiful and humbling, only when we fully believe, grasp and remind ourselves of all three of these background truths. One, that we deserve nothing but condemnation. Jonah, can we just link this to Jonah? Jonah deserved nothing but to be in the belly of a fish after his rebelliousness, disobedience towards God. Jonah deserved nothing but condemnation. Secondly, that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. There was nothing that Jonah could do under the, in the ocean for three days, three nights to save himself from the situation. You and I cannot, Mr. Fix-It, our lives right with Jesus or God. Or say, I'm going I'm to live the perfect life and make right my relationship with God. We are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. And thirdly, that God has saved us despite our sin at infinite cost to himself. These are the three things that you and I can never ever forget when it comes to the gospel or to our lives. One, that, that I deserve to be in the, in the belly of a whale. Secondly, that I can't save myself. And thirdly, that God, because of an incredible cost to himself, saved me and rescued me. What an incredible, incredible truth for us. This is where Jonah found himself. And this is why Jonah is such a beautiful picture for you and I of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us. And I was preparing this and it feels like and I've preached, I think, four or three out of the Jonah series so far. And I feel like I'm repeating myself quite a bit. I don't know if you feel like that. You, hey, oh, I'm sure you've said this in like week two or week one. But there seems to be a, like a theme in Jonah where, where the writer is so deliberate in helping us keep on reminding us of, of how God's grace works towards us. And that it's God's grace for me to recognize that I can't save myself. That it's God's grace towards me for me to cry out to His mercy and say, hey, hey God, I can't pay the price. I don't have enough. You need to pay the price for me. I have nothing. There's a beautiful scripture in Isaiah that says, um, um, Freely come those who cannot, you cannot afford to buy your own bread. You can't afford to buy drink, but it says come and eat. And the gospel is that. We come to the table later without us bringing anything to the table. We have not paid anything. You can't have communion because you tithe every, every month. You can't. 
you can't come to communion because, oh, I serve in church somewhere. Or, or you can't come to the communion table because you pray every morning or you read your Bible every day. You, we and I literally come to the communion table as sinners before a holy God, bringing nothing, bringing nothing to it other than our need for His grace in our lives. That's what qualifies us as saying, I need your grace. Like Jonah cried and said, hey God, I remember your temple and there is a mercy seat. There is a mercy seat for me. Lord, I'm reminding you, hey, have mercy on me today. No human heart will ever learn its sinfulness and impotence by looking at itself. Looking inward doesn't help us. We have to look up. We can't just look in. When we look in, there's nothing good. Nothing's going to rescue or save us when we look inwards. The one author says, no human heart will dare to believe in such a free, costly grace unless it's the only hope. I love that. No human heart will dare to believe in such a free, costly grace unless it's the only hope. What it's saying is, if we can save ourselves, or we think we can, we will. We will do everything we can to save ourselves. And only when we realize that we can't, do we appreciate what Christ has done on the cross? Only when Jonah discovered, I cannot get out of this mess, does he turn to God and starts worshipping and starts calling on God and calling on his, on, his, on his grace towards him. And then lastly, I think this morning is going to be short, um, a grace that pursues us. Those who paid, in verse 8 it says, those who paid regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah is realizing that the, the false idol in his life, the, the idol of being, I'm a Hebrew, or I'm going to have my way, I'm not going to obey God, I'm going to have my, I'm going to determine who I do what and how I serve and how I obey God, was a false idol. It was going to lead to destruction. We, he runs from God, we run from God. You and I run from God. There's not one person sitting here who can say, I don't run from God. I don't. I don't run. I, I obey everything God says. I do everything God calls to. My heart is not... I, I, I'm so secure in God that I don't need the approval of man. Or I'm so, I'm so secure in my job or my work or what God has given me that I don't have lack or I don't have need where I need God to come through. I'm so comfortable that I don't need God as my comforter. No, every single one in this room needs God as our comforter, as the God that is over every decision we make. And we need His I love you more than we need any other human being's I love you, even our own selves. So Jonah is running. And he's not just running from God, but he's also running towards something. Sometimes our running from God is more running towards other things than it is running away from God. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm all good, my love. I'm going to be done now. Running from God often looks like running towards other things. You think, how does that work? It means I run towards the approval of man before I run towards his voice over my life. I run towards Mr. Fix-It. I want to fix everything in my life rather than be trusting God to fix the situation. As Christ follows, the first person we should run towards is him for everything. To go, God, we need you for our lives. So what happens when we run from God? How does grace pursue us? The Canadian Mounties have a saying. I don't know if you ever watched any of this stuff on TV. But they have a logo that says, He always gets his man. There's a series. He always gets his man. And you'll have the program of someone running away. He will find it. He'll catch up to his man. Um, I, 
I want to tell you a, a, my short testimony and then I want to read a passage or a, a song, not a song, actually just a poem, um, The Hound of Heaven to you. So you might have heard me share this before, but at, at Bible College um, in my last year, I was committed to being in full-time ministry, etc. Um, and halfway through our last year, this St. James Church Massacre happened. And if you heard this, just pretend that you haven't. Um, and so I ended up being in the, in the aisle where the guy was lobbing hand grenades and, and shooting, etc. kind of thing, and um, ended up with a bit of shrapnel. Um, but, and surviving it, many of my friends didn't survive that, that church massacre. But that moment of just going through that spun my whole world and my faith just on its head. And I ran as much as I can. I just ran as hard as I can from God. I ran to, to sport. We, we were playing, um, we were, we, <laughs> believe it or not, we were being paid to play beach volleyball on Camps Bay. That was like really, really tough days. Um, a friend of mine's, I think his mom had like an F&B senior person and F&B sponsored us, all our kit and our sunscreen and whatever. And we played professional beach volleyball in my last year at Bible College. I don't know how I passed that. Um, and then part of the beach volleyball culture in Cape Town was just a running at alcohol and parties and like living like an absolute, like the biggest party animals in Cape Town on the beach and at pubs. That's how I, how I lived while I was doing my last year in theological Bible college. If any church knew what my last year at Bible college looked like, they would not have touched me as their pastor or youth worker. I started as a youth worker three months later. Anyway, and I, I, I you, Mike, Mickey, you might have met these guys. Um, Klaus, and I won't mention his partner's name because it's, it's rude, um, but very, very tall, big German guy, complete atheist, and they kind of like adopted me into their gang during my bubble college days while we were playing beach volleyball and earning some bucks. And I remember wanting nothing to do with church, nothing to do with God. I couldn't understand that I'm in a church worshiping God and that he would allow a guy to walk in and start shooting and throwing hand grenades at us. My head couldn't get to this. I think uh, very much, very similar to Jonah. You did this to me. Like you did this. You cast me down into the belly of an ocean. You, you cast a storm at me, etc. And if you ask me back then, I wasn't realizing that God was trying to save honor. I thought God was trying to take honor out. Like, I thought, okay, you deserve this now, honor. You deserve to be taken out because of what you've done. And I remember sitting, um, there was a pub at opposite Newlands Rugby. I think we were just before rugby game or after rugby game. Um, we were sitting in a pub. It used to be called the Animal House. Uh, I don't have to tell you what the Animal House was like as a pub with a name like that. Dark, dingy. The tables were for dancing. It wasn't for drinking and eating food on. And I remember sitting there with a bunch of my mates and... Um, I sat there, they all went to fetch more beers, and I was sitting at a, at a, like a pub table in the like half dark, table full of beers, and I literally could hear God say to me, I'm right here with you, I've, I've, I've not left you. In the middle of a pub, was I drunk when I heard it? I don't know. Um, but I've, I walked away from that evening haunted by that God is still with me. I couldn't sleep that night going, God has not walked away. I've tried to run, but He is still here. And a, a day or two later, a friend of mine sent me a 182-line poem written in 1890 by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven, where God pursues this man running from God. And he hears the footsteps. He can hear the dog breathing over his life. And he thinks the thing that, is, that, is, that he hears pursuing him is there to, to kill and destroy him, but it's actually there to save him. 
And needless to say, it was a significant moment for me just turning back to God, realizing God pursued even those who run away from you. I'm sharing that with you because all of us run from God. There's not one person in this room can say, I've never run from God. Or I've run away from church. Or I've run away from His presence. Or I want nothing to do with it. It doesn't make sense to me. But like the Canadian Mounties say, He always gets His man. We believe theologically that those... That, we believe in a phrase called... Um, what's the word now? Um, irre- irresistible grace. We believe as theologically that once God's grace pursues you, you cannot resist the grace of God. He always gets his man. He keeps pursuing us. So I'm going to read you a few lines. It's very old English. It's a few centuries old. So the, uh, the Thompson, um, Francis Thompson was addicted to, is it uh, opioid? Um, opioid? Opioid? It's a, it was an old-fashioned drug, uh, medicine. The doctors could help. He was addicted to this. His dad was a pastor. Wanted him to become a, a pastor, but he ran from God. Um, he ended up one evening under a London bridge, um, hearing, running away from these footsteps and voice behind him, not realizing this is God pursuing him. And the language that he uses is this hound of, God, of, of heaven. Now, when, when you say hound of heaven, most people have two reactions. Like, great that heaven's there, but hound is not a pleasant picture. I don't know if you've ever seen an Irish wolfhound. It's not a, a, a petty, small, comfy, cuddly lapdog. It's, it's, it takes out wolves. And this is the, the hound that he was referencing to. So let's just read a few and then I want to pray for us and we're going to go to communion. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the midst of my tears, of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vested hope, I sped and shot, but precipitated a down titanic gloom and chasm fears. And those strong feet that followed, followed after. With unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me. What a beautiful picture. The phrase, when it speaks there, it says, it speaks of the feet that follow after him. I pray this morning that if you are, for whatever reason, just shutting the door to God in your life or running from him, that you would hear the feet of God pursuing the beautiful feet of those that pursue you, that you would be pursued by God. I want you to know that your friends that you are trusting, that God would reach that God would, if, if you pray for them, that God would reach your friend. That they would hear the feet. That the, that the voice, that the, the breath of the dog chasing and pursuing them would be there for them. That God in His unhurrying way, unperturbed, deliberately just keeps going at us. He pursues us. He saves us. But then we tend to run again. Isn't that like the pattern of, of our faith? Is I run from God, He pursues me, He wins me, and then my heart wanders again, and then He pursues me again. It's a God that continuously pursues me. And I want to say to you, if you're sitting in church and saying, Oh no, surely God is tired, He's grown weary of me, He's tired of pursuing me, He's, just, he's given up, I can't hear His 
footsteps chasing or pursuing me. I can't hear, I can't hear his breath. I can't hear the unhurried, the unhurried pace of him pursuing me. I want to say to you that once God starts pursuing you, he doesn't stop pursuing you. No matter how you find or where you find yourself in your faith, in your walk with him, in your behavior, whatever that looks like. The Bible teaches us that, the, that once God starts pursuing, He keeps pursuing. And that God is not shocked and surprised when we turn and we start walking in a different direction. You, we're going to read Jonah, the rest of the Jonah, the book. And you're going to think, wow, this is the moment. Jonah is going to just come right, do everything God's called him to, and live a perfect life. And actually we're going to go, not even a chapter later, and go, oh, Jonah, here we go again. There's more work for God to do. There's more room and there's more ground in your heart for God to take. And because of his faithfulness, he will continue pursuing. And I want to say that to us as a church. We want to believe, and we do believe in this God, this hound of heaven, that we are here because he pursued you. If you're sitting in church and you have faith in Christ, you are here because he fetched you. He pursued you. He found you. And some of us you found at the bottom of the whale, in the, in the bottom of the ocean. Some of us you found at rock bottom. Some of us have not been to rock bottom yet, and we... We feel like, hey God, like, save me from there. You don't have to go Jonah's way. Jonah Jonah's not the perfect picture for how we should all live our lives. Can I just, as your pastor, encourage you? That's not what we're encouraging. Most of us, by God's grace, won't go there. But if you find yourself today there, where you find you say, oh no, I am there. I am rock bottom. I am calling out to God. I need Him to come through now. Not tomorrow, not yesterday. Today, would you come? I want to pray that that would happen this morning. That grace would move from an abstract idea and thought of belief system in our hearts to something that we, we experience through one another, through the body of Christ, through communion, through God's Spirit engaging with us. I'd love us to do that.